And welcome to That Horror Cast. I'm Mallory Smart. And I'm Dimitri Samarov. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the 1988 psychological thriller from David Cronenberg, Dead Ringers. So, yeah, the Dead Ringers is uh, a 1988 film from Canadian filmmaker David Cronenberg. Uh, it followed uh, his biggest hit movie, I think still to date, which is The Fly, his remake of The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. That was his big hit, I think. And it was that was sort of the first, his first bid to like join the mainstream. Before that, he was strictly sort of like a horror movie di- director. Uh, almost all his movies are made in Canada, so that makes him even more sort of regional, you know, and not mainstream. And, and the subject matter of his films, usually they they call it uh, body horror, where there's something with the body that's gone wrong, or like there's something mutant growing out of it, you know. <laughs> A lot of, he often explores sort of sexual themes, psychological problems, uh, yeah, they're they're uh, they're sort of a kind of a grim, icy tone to a lot of his films. Uh, he's got a he's got a mood. There's sort of a David Cronenberg mood, kind of that you can easily uh, detect through throughout his filmography. Uh, but yeah, uh, Dead Ringers was probably it's it's one of his more acclaimed films, and uh, it was a big art house film. It wasn't a huge like it wasn't like a blockbuster, but it has very good reputation, and it played at all the art houses. And uh, as far as uh, plot goes, it's based very loosely on the true story of the uh, Marcus twins, who were gynecologists who uh, succumbed to drug addiction. Uh, so there was a, a book uh, called Twins that he used also for reference, which uh, is a from what I saw online, at least, is more of like a kind of a salacious kind of supermarket circular kind of account, a sensationalist account of this, these guys' story. But uh, the movie stars Jeremy Irons as both the brothers, uh, and they're these brilliant gynecologists who whose life is torn apart by basically by love. One of them falls for a woman uh, who is an actress and things just go to shit. I'm almost like a little pissed that you mentioned the book because I was going to be like, bam, three times in a row. (laughs) This is the third book. Three, three times in a row, Dimitri hasn't read the book. Actually, I did, I I did read, read The, the Shining once, but a million years ago. <laughs> but like, I remember with the last podcast, because I was listening to it yesterday before I was getting ready to upload, I was like, oh, at the end we talk about how the next movie is definitely not going to be based at all off of a book. I think, I think it's very loosely, like I, I think it almost doesn't count. Like there wasn't any controversy from the authors of this book about what Cronenberg did, you know, in the movie. It's now, based n- off of the book in the same way that The Exorcist is based off of a true story. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's sort of based on quote-unquote real events, but really it's, it's another excuse for Cronenberg to, 
sort of explore all his favorite themes, which is like sort of, you know, romantic and sexual desire and then these problems with bodies and how, you know, bodies are these very imperfect vessels and they're, people are often dissatisfied with their bodies and want to alter them or do stuff to them. I was going to say, like... With horrible results. <laughs> nobody can make me feel, like, quite as uncomfortable as David Cronenberg can. Yeah, yeah, that's his thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost not, like, uh, scary, but, like, just, like, disturbing. I was watching it the other day. Um, my boyfriend was just in the background, and he's like, what the fuck are you watching? <laughs> oh, he'd never seen it? Yeah, he'd never seen it. <laughs> like, have, it was have, the part but with you've the seen it before, right? Tools. Yeah, I'd seen it, like, a few times before, but, like a while back and I even was like with the gynecological tools and I was like oh shit I forgot about that yeah the gynecological tools for mutant women yeah (laughs) I think my favorite part is when he finds that it's actually being displayed as modern art Mm -hmm. oh after at the end yeah towards the end yeah and he 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 breaks through the the display and wants to take them Mm -hmm. says it's his yeah but it's art and yeah that's another I mean, there's a lot of sort of references to art and art history, I think, throughout. Uh, like like in that, that one, uh, th- there's a couple of uh, um, operating room scenes where, where they're dressed in these red robes that look like Spanish Inquisition. You know, cat, r- they're kind of amazing looking. I was going to say, uh, for me, it reminded almost like a, of a black mass. Yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, very yeah. satanic. Yeah, uh, but they're just, yeah, they're doctors. I also like the ritualistic way that they're, like, getting ready. Like, it's not the typical way that surgeons get ready before, like, a surgery. Yeah. I don't know. I just found this movie just fun as hell. Yeah. It's probably not the right way you're supposed to feel after watching a horror movie, but... I was just like, I messaged a lot of people. I was like, have you seen this movie? Go watch this movie. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it definitely casts this, like, this weird spell on you when when you watch it. It really is. And it's, there's so much of it is so, so wrong, but it's just right. (laughs) Because I think, I mean, I, I guess some some people have raised issues about sort of like the attitudes towards women in this movie, but really, I don't I don't think at any point, unless you yourself have are sick, do you think that these brothers are doing good? You know, like that they're right. The thing that things they're doing, the things they're saying, despite being like reputed medical geniuses. I don't think your sympathy is ever with them, especially. No. no, they're fucked up. And the way Jeremy Irons plays it, you know, he's got that kind of like icy British remove. It's just perfect. He Both deserved the... an Oscar for that. Yeah, like, oh, for sure. He yeah. was amazing. Yeah, he, I think he won a bunch of uh, award, acting awards for, for that portrayal. It's not often that you can get an actor who could play two characters, like very starkly different and everything in the same movie. Yeah, I, I read uh, on on the Wikipedia page, it said apparently he had two different re- dressing rooms for the two characters. Really? Yeah, to help him get into the, you know... That's cool. ...the mindset of two people, yeah. yeah Did you I, have the issue at all of telling who was who in certain scenes? 
Uh, not usually, but I, I think it's also as it goes on. I mean, they kind of switch roles also in a way, you know, because first one gets depressed because uh, Claire, the actress uh, who he's in love with, played by Jean-Vierre Bujol, she leaves and he's all depressed because he thinks their their love affair is over. And uh, the other, so that's Beverly. He, and he's supposed to be like the sensitive brilliant one and Elliot's supposed to be the outgoing he's the one that like he takes all the credit he's the charismatic one he's sort of like the spokesman yeah uh but they they switch roles as as the movie goes on you know uh so Elliot wants to take care of Beverly and Beverly is becomes addicted to barbiturates you know and just becomes a junkie basically uh and then in order to cure him Elliot decides to also take the same amount of drugs to connect with him so they can be connected again the way they were before this woman came between them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he winds up he winds up even worse off. You know what I mean? I liked witnessing the mental deterioration of the two because <laughs> <laughs> that made you happy. <laughs> well no, it's like the more they deteriorated, like the more they kinda like devolved into being one person is what I felt. Well, yeah, and I mean, throughout, basically, I think the point is that they are actually one person, and they're just the two. It was a way, like metaphorically, for Cronenberg to to explore like the dualities and the the clashing forces within anyone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because the one brother is like confident and like cocky, and, and the other one is really smart but shy, and everybody's got at least those two sides and many other facets that uh, compete or you know so yeah together they're sort of like one person and then there's the hallucination uh, about the and the references being Siamese twins yeah there's several references to Chang and Ang you know the original Siamese twins Mm -hmm. yeah that's what made me think of Basket Case by the way I don't know if you've seen that or not oh yeah oh sure yeah so (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know if I need to explain that. People just look up Basket Case. It's too much to explain. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it, it definitely felt like, you know, how he was constantly, like, in Basket Case carrying around, like, his twin and everything, who's, like, mutated and fucked up and shit. That's what made me think of, like, them, how they're just constantly always dragging them across the finish line to a certain degree, like... Beverly is always trying to come up with these amazing ideas, and then like Elliot's just kind of following him, and then Elliot's doing the vice versa for women, and like dragging Beverly into like losing his virginity because yeah, well, yeah, because well, yeah. the one of the big switches is that so this woman Claire that uh, Beverly falls in love with, Elliot's actually the one that sleeps with her first, mm-hmm. and then they switch up like you know Elliot says that you know you, you really need to go get laid basically, and and switches up and sends sends Beverly for a date with, with her, and that, that's when he falls for her, you know? Don't you love that scene, though, when she confronts them and Elliot actually admits it? He's like, actually, it was me. I yeah. fucked you first. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's one of those, like, it's supposed to feel shocking, and I think if you check your morality at the door before watching this movie, it's almost like, damn, he did that. I love his nonchalance. Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, one of the re- I I think that one of the ways that this movie is saved from being, you know, condemned or canceled or whatever is that there's never I mean, you have to be pretty dim to think that the movie endorses 
the behavior of these people. You know what I mean? Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I don't know, if you're a fan of body horror in general, you're just probably not going to cancel that. I, it never feels problematic when I watch things that are like falling under that genre because it's like you know that that's the intent, you know. Yeah, exactly, and uh, yeah, and yeah, the, and then yeah, also, I mean, there's it's it's sort of it's endless, like the the amazing scenes and lines in this movie, but like the, the fact of when she uh, first comes in. Uh, for her appointment and the, they meet because she's unable to have children and she's hoping that these brilliant brothers who somehow she doesn't know that they're twins. She's kind of clueless. She's an actress. She's in her own world. Everybody else knows they're, they're, they're twins. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and it turns out, and the, the brother like compliments her on her internal organs and says that there should be a, like a beauty, beauty contest. contest for, for internal, you know, what is it, for beautiful on the inside. Yeah, for organs. Yeah, and that's kind of like that's his that's some sort Hannibal of like come on. Shit. No, you know that's his that's his come on. That's his like line to get her. You know, and what's it works. interesting is that like they totally flip that deal at the end, and they're like mutant women. They're like totally wrong on the inside and everything. Well, yeah, because well, by then you know, a you know they're they're drugged and they're totally wrecked by, by, uh, you know, heartache and love and it throws them completely off. And they had, yeah, they had this trajectory of being these celebrated genius, uh, gynecologists and everything just goes to shit because one of them falls in love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wanted your opinion on this one thing. I don't know if there is any connection between these ideas at all, but obviously there is a lot of, uh, well, obviously, women are the central center of the entire story. I'm not... Would you say it's rape? Like, when they switch places and everything? It's fucking with women. Um, there's obviously lack of consent to a lot of degree. Sure, yeah. And uh, yeah, they're I think gynecologists, I, and they're fucking with se their se Sexual abuse, uh, broadly, for sure, yeah. But what fascinated me is... Um, I forget who did it, but they talk shit to Beverly saying that he had a woman's name and doesn't he feel like a woman or mm -hmm. too feminine and everything. And I want to know, do you think that was on purpose? Yeah, I, I think that, I think he chose the, these names, like Elliot and Beverly, that could, could go either way on purpose because I think not only are they like half a person, but they, they could be like any kind of person, any mm -hmm. gender, any, you know. Because let's face it, Beverly is a very... I've never met a guy named Beverly, so I found that very intriguing. I, I think there were, I mean, it's one of those old-fashioned kind of English names, you know, like it could be. And, uh, Mallory and, wouldn't know. <laughs> and, you know, we are dealing with Canada, you know, they're the former British colony, you know, they still have, they still uh, really function like by the British them. rules in some ways, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, I, I think he often, he has these characters, it's a way not only like these growths and other the body body horror stuff, he's often questioning the traditional roles or like you know uh, masculinity, femininity, all that stuff. It's all very fluid in in the world of David Cronenberg, and you know he does it with extremes with with gore and like other infestations and stuff. But it's 
I think it's all metaphorical to explore these ideas about people's uncertainty about who or what they are. Yeah, there's definitely like almost an emotionally cold like exploration of like eroticism and misogyny and dichotomies and everything. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. that Cronenberg is able to kind of do that in all of his films. Yeah, no, like no. A detachment it, almost. It runs through all of it. Yeah, there's this coldness. But the coldness lets you like look at it clearly in a way, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because he's not so overly uh, telling you to identify with any of these characters. You're you're like you're able to look at them at a remove as well as a viewer, you know what I mean? What I most liked about this movie, and maybe I'm totally insane, but it was the first horror movie that we watched that felt like it could actually happen. Hmm. Did, did you get that vibe, or maybe I was, like, too into it? But it's, like, I feel, like, given that it's sort of lightly, loosely based off of these two people, I mean, getting under that, like, suddenly, like, drug addiction and giving yourself... Yeah, well, this, that, is, yeah. this is the first one with nothing supernatural in it. There's nothing supernatural in this movie, mm-hmm. and all the stuff that's fantastical is hallucinations probably caused by, by uh, drugs. And obviously they see... And mental illness. Yeah. yeah. From like the first scene when they're kids and everything. I was like... Oh, yeah. When they go up to the girl and they want to fuck the little girl and she's just horrified. And that just tells you everything you need to know about these guys. Yeah. How how clueless they are. Like they're not able to connect to other people because they're so brilliant at their one thing and they're connected to each other, but they're disconnected from society in a huge way. I almost half expected towards the end that they would almost try and physically connect themselves instead of obviously the really crazy murder situation. Well, they did. I mean, they, yeah, there's the scene where they're kind of connected in, in the bed, you know, like they yeah. have this thing between them. And, and then, yeah, they, he uses, Beverly use, uses the tools on, on his brother, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the scene in the end when they're, you know, it's a, it's a pietas, it's a, it's a Madonna and child scene, you know, where he's holding his dead, you know, eviscerated brother in, in on his knees, you know? Yeah. But it's him, it's him and him, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, two, two parts of that, the one, the one person. Uh, yeah. Definitely. So what made you pick this movie? It's a. I mean, I think you know we're we're just starting this this show, and uh, I'm going to favorites, and uh, yeah, I think you had asked me about you know favorite, like what's your favorite horror movie, and the, this this one came up. This one this one's up there, you know. Uh, I think I, I mean I'd seen, I saw this movie in the theater uh, for sure when oh, it came that's out. So lucky. What year was that? Eighty eight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. It's lucky. It's just it's a function of me being old once again. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, and I I was on board with. I, I mean, I loved uh, some you know Videodrome and Scanners and The Brood. And, mm-hmm. You know, like all those movies. But yeah, this is this is the this is the movie that I I think I've probably seen The Fly. I don't like The Fly nearly as much as this one. That's a little but, bit more campy. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean that that's got a lot of sadness to it too, but it, it's also a lot of it is because of it's Jeff Goldblum and Jeff Goldblum's got his own vibe. Jeff Goldblum's like it's its own thing. He <laughs> himself know? is a vibe check. Yeah. 
yeah, Jeff Goldblum is always Jeff Goldblum. So I think he sucked away a little bit of the Cronenberg vibe just because it's him. <laughs> I think that's why it seems like Cronenberg hasn't really worked with too many like huge A-listers. No, it's it's rare. Uh, I mean, he, later on, you know, he went on to work with who else? Uh, he had Viggo Mortensen in uh, Eastern Promises and History of Violence. Uh, yeah, not huge stars. Uh, what we have learned about Viggo Mortensen, though, is that he's really good, like almost Gary Oldman style, at like just entering an entirely different person and not being like, oh, that's him. Like, yeah. forget. Yeah, so may- maybe Jeff Goldblum's not the best match for Cronenberg. Although, I mean, yeah. people love that Fly movie. I don't know. It, I, I never think of it as a Cronenberg movie, I guess. Yeah, I keep forgetting about that, too. That's on Netflix, I think. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be curious to rewatch it. I did rewatch some of uh, the early... Criterion had a bunch of early Cronenberg mm. uh, on, so I rewatched Shivers, which is amazing, and uh, uh, Rabid, and uh, The Brood, which is also great, and Scanners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all great, but they're all much smaller, like... This is one of the first ones with, like I said at the top, sort of like an A-list. I mean, a very respected actor in Jeremy Irons, in uh, a bid to get out of like sort of the the horror movie ghetto. You know, like like even though his movies, those early movies are like by no means like they're not slasher or exploitation movies in the least. Mm-hmm. But they were lower budget, and they were aimed at you know audiences that that liked scary movies rather than like quote unquote art movies. Yeah. It almost makes you wonder why was this considered more of an art movie? I I I mean I, I have no idea who who I think there's market forces and people that decide the way that they promote things and they say this is this thing this is that is that thing yeah that's all. It's I just always found genre fascinating. Because, yeah. like, you know, like what I was describing as horror movies and, like, what you added as horror movies and then what Lauren was mentioning for horror movies, and I was like, geez, this is such a huge, wide net. Oh, yeah. 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 So, it... I don't know. It's so weird. I actually had someone describe Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one, as an art house movie, too, and I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I see it. So... I was just trying to figure out was, what defines no Texas Chainsaw was not movie. an art. No, it's not an art house movie. I mean, it <laughs> it, it broke through in a way. Uh, well, because the, it was shot kind of like to look like, almost like a documentary. You know, was it like one of the first films that did that? I think it was an early one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a hugely, obviously, hugely influential movie. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I think a lot of these distinctions and these classifications are just marketing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a way like there's people that you know. Obviously, uh, a movie is a is a business enterprise, and they're trying to recoup their money. And uh, there's people paid to strategize how to promote shit. And so you come think up it's with more movies. about like the marketing than it is like the audience? Yeah. Well, yeah, they're trying to target things to a bigger or smaller audience or whatever. Uh, and using their ad budget, uh, yeah, I, I personally I don't care at all about it. Uh, it doesn't matter. These things don't matter. There, there are cheapo movies that are a thousand times better than movies that are made for millions of dollars. You know. 
and there's vice more, versa. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah, there's big budget movies that are good. Uh, there's movies with shitty actors that are good and ones with good actors that are bad. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. Tons. Uh, it, it's, yeah, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And, uh, yeah, and even, you know, our show, this show, it's about horror movies, but it's, it's just, it's a pretty loose definition. It can go very, very wide. I, we haven't set parameters, you know? Like, what, what is and isn't horror? I don't know if anybody could ever really define it anyhow. I think it's almost like anything that can mentally disturb you, but then it just goes back to the conversation we had in our first episode that, like, we find a normal shit scary. Yeah. Like, this made me uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, like, you, you'll, like you'll probably cut it again, but, yeah, I'll mention Forrest Gump again, one of the most horrifying films ever made. Oh, no, I'm <laughs> keeping it this time. We, we, we mentioned it at the right time. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, I don't know... Yeah, there's different aims. Yeah, and I don't think Cronenberg is ever trying to do, uh, like, in, in uh, distinct from, say, The Exorcist, there's not any, like, those jump, whatever, scare, what do they call? Like, when you're, like, boo, like, kind of moments. Jump scares, yeah. Jump scares. There's no jump scares in Cronenberg movies. Hardly ever, you know what I mean? It's a, there's a creeping dread, and there's this feeling of, like, discomfort. But it's a discomfort about like what it feels like to have a body and to be alive, you know. Like, yeah. I was gonna say like, is that what body horror means? Because like, yeah. you know, when you hear the word body horror, you almost think almost like distorted bodies, which there definitely is like a little bit of like a mental distortion of what a body is like. I mean, I'm when I hear body horror, I think eraser head, but mm. Cronenberg is definitely more. I feel psychological. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think it's a it's a lot about uh, uh, like dysmorphia or like people not sensing what their bodies actually are. So like when he has things growing out of these people's bodies, you you, you get the feeling that it's it's for a psychological or metaphorical uh, effect. You know what I mean? It may not even be happening. Do you think that they're starting to see um, the dysmorphia in themselves first? Or do you think that they're, like, freaked out more about, like, women and saying that there's something wrong with them internally? I think they're projecting on the women, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what <laughs> like, I got a vibe, yeah. Yeah, because he's, you know, the, with the actress, so she comes in and she's desperately wants to have children, and he tells... he. And, examines her and says she has a trifurcated cervix, uh, which probably, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a gynecologist, but I don't think that's I a thing that actually thing. happens. They mentioned a few things in that movie that aren't legit. And then, yeah, she, and he tells her, and she's like, does that mean I, I get to have three babies or something like that? <laughs> and it's like, that's not how it works. You're never going to have children. But yeah, I think that these, these like mutations or defects that they're seeing in the women are really the problems, mental problems that they're having, and they're projecting it onto the women. Um, <laughs> but uh, because, you know, they have this early in life success, and, you know, in medical school, they invent a, a, some kind of medical device, and they're celebrated, and they give all these speeches, and 
world-renowned, uh, that also distorts their self-image and their ability to see what they are in their own very real problems. Like, it's, yeah, that, um, it's not normal to send your brother in to fuck your date. You know, like, that's not a thing you do like a normal person does, you know? But it is a thing that, like, a lot of people have thought of when it comes to twins. Yeah, that they, that they can do shit like that. Yeah. When you were saying that, like, they innovated a lot, that golden, uh, I don't know, I think it was supposed to be a gynecological tool, but it looked like a rib spreader to me. Yeah, yeah. Was that what it was supposed to be used as? And then they were just using it in the wrong way when they finally, like, lost their shit? Yeah, I think so, yeah. It, it was something about connecting, like, w during surgery, something about, yeah, holding something. Yeah, I, I didn't, once again, I, th I think it's mo he, he has stuff like that in, just like the, the tools for a visual effect, you know? I mean, they're beautiful things to look at. And, like, yeah, you, you make a thing out of gold, you know? <laughs> it's, it's striking, just as, and the, the gynecological tools for mutant women are, art objects, you know? Yeah, that immediately made me think of that. Well, he gets an artist to cast them, to, to design mm -hmm. them and cast them, and they end up in a gallery at the end. I like uh, how the artist, like, didn't take him seriously at all, too. He was just like, yeah, for mutated women, great idea. Yeah, that's, yeah he, he can't believe that the, this psycho is actually going to use them as a medical tool. And, yeah, that's another great, it's a great sort of illustration of the way you know, Cronenberg's saying how out of touch artists can get in their ideas or they're like, they can become brilliant but completely out of touch with reality, you know? Mm -hmm. Like these are, these are not applicable tools. They're, they're not medical tools. They're art objects. And, but he can't see the difference, <laughs> you know? It definitely... So, like he should have been a sculptor, you know, like instead of a fucking surgeon. I loved when he like spread out like the blueprints and everything. Like I need you to make this and everything. I was like, holy shit, that looks like torture instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, my question, do you think he was actually trying to help women with these tools? Did he actually legitimately think that he was helping them or? I think he was way down, like, you know, when... His his mentality was so altered. I think he believed it. Yeah. I think he believed that, and but instead, because you know he what he should have been doing is trying to fix himself. But instead, he thought that he could fix things by mangling other people. Uh, yeah, like unlike so many movies that will deal with like, yeah, like sort of grotesque like medical shit like this. Somehow, uh, somehow Cronenberg is able to never make it exploitative. You know what I mean? It's not like there's nobody getting their jollies off mm -hmm. by by this violence and mutilation. Like it's it's not torture porn at all. No, no, it's not torture. It's the opposite. Like it's it's intriguing. It's intriguing, but it's like you know. And never watching this, do you think that this guy is like doing a cool thing? You know, like or, or like. It all feels very, like, theatrical and everything. Yeah. Almost theater of the grotesque. And then when you actually think about, like, the way that they are, like, putting the robes and everything on, it's almost like they're about to put on a show. Yeah, it's a performance, yeah. Yeah. That one scene, um, the final surgery, I know that there was blood. I couldn't tell, though, if he actually did get one of the surgical instruments inside somebody or if he just nicked her. 
Well, I think he started and they pulled him away, you know? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. I like how he actually <laughs> tried to, like, uh, steal her, uh, was it, anesthetic? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, he took a hit. Yeah. <laughs> when he, like, leapt on, I was like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing. Also, sort of uh, a lot about, like, how what authority uh, doctors have, like, how far his assistants let him go until, like, finally dragging him away. Like, they shouldn't have even let him, like, start once he pulled out the instruments. Like, the, and the, uh, the nurse was like, all right, I, I guess this is okay. And she's, well, you, like, like you saying, like, you, yeah, you label these, like, one, two, three, four, five, just like you always do. And he's telling her, you know, how to just give me the right tools. It's like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, but they, they keep it going a lot longer than... They should have, you know? I would say that's probably that. And then when he's <laughs> fucking up his brother were probably the only times where I didn't just feel uncomfortable. I felt a little bit of tension where I was like, oh, shit, how far is this going to go? Yeah. Like, I knew that he was definitely going to mutilate his brother. That, that felt obvious. I just wasn't quite sure how far he was going to mutilate him. Well, yeah. It, well, you know, and what he's trying to do is they're trying to get back to the way they were before before that uh, Claire, the actress, came into their life and kind of set them against each other, you know? What it made me think of, and I don't think... I think we've discussed it once. Do you watch American Horror Story at all? I haven't seen it since, like... I think I saw one or two first seasons, yeah. It's it's associated with an X, you know, in my head. Oh, I've had that. <laughs> we all have things like yeah, that. you know how they there's songs shows you can't shows songs to movies whatever like that's sort of either ruined or like you can't really do it. <laughs> but there is this one scene in um, the season hotel, and I feel like they totally ripped it off of uh, Dead Ringers. Sarah Paulson's character, which like Jeremy Irons, she is amazing at being able to play like multiple people within, like, one episode or one show. Mm. But she gets, like, fucked up, like, on heroin and everything, and she wants to feel the closeness with the person with her, and they're fucked up on heroin, too, and they're like, yes, let's do this. And she actually uh, sews them together. Uh, And I was just kind of, like, expecting that a little bit when, Mm. like, he was, like, getting really high and having that, like, resting with his brother and everything and... Yeah, and that apartment just filled with garbage. Yeah, that apartment. You know, no one was going to be shocked as to why they did shit when they probably found them. Yeah. They were like, oh, okay, this has been happening steadily. We yeah, and then there's, there's the one scene with the, like, where, he, was, did he forget the key or something? He couldn't get in, and he gets the doorman or the house manager to let him in. And he's like, what the hell? He's yeah, to, like, and then he just the pushes them out like, like nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> Move along, and this is—I mean, this is what you know. If you're if you're rich or whatever, you can you can do whatever you want, you know. Like, and you're not going to be questioned. <laughs> I just found that fascinating. Like, he did it almost like he was locked in to his own apartment. Yeah, and I don't know if that's actually possible. I'm not sure, but, I mean, he was so impaired by that point, you know, that... That's what I was wondering, like, if that, like, was supposed to represent that he was, like, getting more and more trashed, trashed and trapped and everything, and... 
I think so, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think a, a lot of times, and I mean, Cronenberg uh, is just a master at setting this kind of like mood where you don't question the logic of any of it because in, inside that, that mood, like any of that crazy shit that happens totally makes sense, you know what I mean? It's logical in, inside the, the lunacy of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as you said, like, yeah, this, a lot of stuff in this movie feels like it. Yeah, this could happen to a person. They, they could get that far, like, up their own ass, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, when you actually start <laughs> thinking about, like, say, every crazy serial killer you've heard of, they, they've done some intense shit. So once you start, like, your mind starts losing touch with reality more and more, the more capable they are of doing things that you'd be like, wow, I didn't think a human could do that. Think, like, Jeffrey Dahmer and some of the weird things like where he would, like, drill holes and everything. Yeah. Where I, I well, love that I brought this to a really gross point as opposed to the more theatrical... But, you know... Yeah. Well, yeah, Dahmer is just trying to make a friend. Exactly. To make and a friend. Literally make wanted one. to be attached to Elliot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to be brothers again, Dimitri. Yeah, it, it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard to get your brother back. <laughs> your brother slash your you know, other half of yourself. I would love for there to be a double feature of that in Basket Case. <laughs> I would so watch that. My only question is like, which movie would come first in the showing? Uh, I, you'd, you'd probably want to do uh, Dead Ringers first, and then Basket Case would kind of be comedy relief. Not Definitely. quite comedy relief, but it's the tone of Basket Case is very, very different than than Dead Ringers. It's not it's not a solemn, somber kind of movie. No, know? definitely. <laughs> But it definitely does like take it to the extreme in a certain way. I'm trying to figure out what kind of horror basket case is actually considered. I don't know. That guy made he made a few movies. He had uh, when I was working in movie theater in high school, he had a movie called Frankenhooker, which really? is pretty funny. Yeah, uh, I think it was the same guy. I th- I'm pretty sure it was. And yeah, yeah it, it's 1990. About, yeah, Frankenhooker. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's about this this Frankenstein made prostitute she says want a date going out and like of course she gets a lot of takers it was a big hit midnight movie at our at our theater frankenhooker you know i I would guess i would define him actually more as like a grindhouse like exploitation film sort of yeah but like he can you know he comes i mean he's after the the grindhouse era you know he's not he's not really in the like heyday of driving movies, he's later. He's in the eighties and not into the nineties. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy, uh, which is whereas, yeah, I mean Texas Chainsaw was sort of a classic drive-in movie. You know, it's a movie oh, yeah. to see at the drive-in in the seventies. I am trying to remember. Isn't the guy who directed the first, uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the same guy who did Poltergeist? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? But, uh, Toby Ho- Hopper? Toby Hooper, yeah. Hooper, yeah. yeah, he died, he died a, a little while ago. Aww. Yeah, uh, he, yeah, he was an interesting director. He had a couple other movies but I, that are not coming to mind right now. But yeah, but Poltergeist was made with... Spielberg was involved with Poltergeist. That was like a, a lot more mainstream movie. 
Yeah, and, he was like on set a lot. I remember. Yeah, I think they, were, they had a lot of yeah. conflicts. Apparently, a lot of the uh, actors were afraid of like you know the scenes where there was like kind of water. They were thinking that they were gonna get like electrocuted, and Spielberg actually was like, "All right, I'll stand in the water here, so mm. I'm putting myself at risk to do it." Oh, okay. oh I did. <laughs> yeah, didn't know about that, but I I did a very long project on Steven Spielberg. Oh yeah. <laughs> back when I was in high school, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all done weird projects, haven't we? I guess, yeah, I guess. Not but, as uh, weird as Beverly and Elliot, but yeah. No, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I would say, yeah, Cronenberg's probably one, among my favorite uh, directors. There's very few of his movies that I don't like. I like most of them. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask if there were any that you don't like. Uh, I, not a big fan of Naked Lunch. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the movie that came after. It was after Dead Ringers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a that was a definitely one of these things that I think suffered from being a, an adaptation from a very famous book. Personally, I found it to be a shitty book, so yeah. I feel like he was just stuck with a very hard <laughs> to deal with thing. Maybe, yeah, but it, you know, it's it, it's a defined thing, you know, whether you like Naked Lunch or not. Uh, I think like, that was the very next film he did after Dead Ringers. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's the one that came after. Uh, so I didn't love that. Uh, M. Butterfly, I don't remember much of, but that's, a, that's an adaptation of an opera. Also, like, not the closest material. Uh, also, don't love History of Violence. Very, I don't like that one very much. Mm-hmm. I think I like most of the other ones. And he, and yeah, unfortunately, he hasn't directed one since about 2014, 2013. I believe he is working on one right now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, uh... But yeah, the last one's great. It's uh, Maps to the Stars. That one was good. I liked that and Cosmopolis. Oh, yeah, yeah, Cosmopolis I don't love either. But uh, <laughs> Existence is interesting. Uh, oh, the other one, the only one I haven't seen is the one, he did one about, uh, I think, Freud. Hmm. Is Which it Freud is or Freud or Jung? I forget. Dangerous Mind or... Dangerous, A Dangerous Method. Da- dangerous Method, right. It's a bio of... I think it was Freud, but uh, I didn't. I haven't seen that one. Uh, I think that's the only one I haven't seen. Yeah, the, I haven't seen that one either. Of the features, uh, but yeah, especially yeah, especially some of the early ones and Dead Ringers. Uh, I mean, they're they're terrific, and yeah, they're I guess broadly they're they're they, most of them can be classified horror, but uh, he's got a lot more in his mind than just scares or. Chill, thrills and chills, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not an amusement park ride with Cronenberg, that's for sure. It, it, it's not the haunted house. You know? It almost kind of makes you think like what you would be like if you had a nervous breakdown. That's what I always think of when I like watch his films. Yeah, like they almost like I always want to call my therapist afterwards. Yeah, he he has this way of making you feel like you're inside of people's heads, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and having having all kinds of terrible thoughts. And I think that's even more impressive than, like, you know, when we see them projecting onto other, other characters. He has this ability to have us project onto his characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's one of these guys that's really able to use movies as, you know, like this kind of, like, waking nightmare, you know? <laughs> like, you're, you're watching, like, this thing that's playing out inside your head on, on a screen. 
in that way, I guess I could see now how David Lynch's Eraserhead could be compared to this a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I think Eraserhead's sort of in the same ballpark. Yeah, I mean, Lynch went other other directions after Eraserhead. Obviously. But, uh, yeah, uh, I think they have some stuff in common. Um, I like the idea of just seeing, like, how far the human mind can go, like how dark and into the abyss it, that the brain is actually capable of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and the, yeah, he, he's, he's, always, he's always exploring that, you know. I mean, in scanners, you know, brains blow up, you know, like... <laughs> By the way, I was looking up uh, a dangerous method, and you're kind of right on both. It has Jung and Freud. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, because they were connected. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I should track it down. Yeah, I have to track it down now too. It seems interesting. It has Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, yeah. That's I guess that's his buddy. The la- in the last section of his career, I don't know how old he- he's got to be getting up there, Cronenberg. And I know his kid just recently directed a horror movie. Uh, his kid, I forget what it's called, just like in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think he's, he can't be more than his 70s, right? He's got to be in his 70s for sure. Yeah. Because like we're talking movies that like were in the 80s. God, I'm trying to do math in my head. In yeah. my mind, 10 years ago is still the 90s, so... Right, because we all get stuck with, you know, whenever we were kids or whatever, that's the, yeah. I think he, what, did he start in the, he was definitely in the 70s. I don't know if he had 60s movies. Maybe he was in film school in the 60s. I don't know when his first one is. Let's see. Let's look it up. I mean, Shivers was 75. Okay. And uh, Shivers was his first feature. Oh, he had a, what do you, he had, 69 Stereo, 70 Crimes of the Future. And then, yeah. I feel like this is, like, not just an endorsement of Dead Ringers. Like, we're just endorsing Cronenberg. Like, watch him. You need to. Oh, for sure. No, I I would would tell, like, especially people that haven't seen Cronenberg movies. Yeah, for sure. See it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a a good question whether, and I'm not the guy to judge, like, how Cronenberg fits into, you know, 2021 society. But uh, I think, I think he survived, I think he looks, his movies age really well, I think, in a way that some others don't, you know what I mean? You know, I was going to say, I I don't think he's made anything that I personally would have seen as problematic. It's almost like he's on the right side of history, kind of like in the way that Seinfeld portrays some of these issues, where it's almost like he's showing you, wow, that's fucked up. I'm not endorsing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, yeah, you never feel in a Cronenberg movie that he's getting his jollies off. Like, that's the, like, a big problem I have with Tarantino. Like, in Tar- Tarantino movies, the violence is celebrated, and the, the violence is basically the sex scenes. It's substituted, you know? The sexiest thing in Tarantino is the violence. He gets off on it. I mean, right there, we're talking about a guy who actually defends Roman Polanski, so you can't expect. Well, too he, much. he 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 defended Harvey Weinstein. He def- defended lots of people because, you know, they made each other a lot of money. It's that boys' club. Yeah, uh, and that's very different. You know what I mean? And I could I could see at some point in the future, you know, like somebody like Tarantino being written off or being relegated to the the problematic heap. You know. 
See, the misogyny in his films, you could almost be like, oh, he, he kind of feels that way, you know? Yeah. Whereas misogyny yeah. in Cronenberg films are like, no, he's just showing how it is, how it could be. Yeah, the, I mean, there. Are, yeah, you can go through the Cronenberg movies and there's many men that treat women very badly, but it's never endorsed, It's and it's never, you never feel that that's the uh, director's point of view, that this is uh, approved of, you know? <laughs> And I also feel like there's some form of morality that comes out towards the end after all the twisted characters. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you don't ever feel that, like, Elliot and Beverly should triumph or or live, you know? Like, they they should fucking go away and die. You know what I mean? They're they're fucked up and they don't really need to be living, and especially don't need to be operating on women. Like, you know? they're not just nightmares themselves. They are the stuff of nightmares. Like Yeah, and yeah, at no point does anybody in their right mind, would anybody in their right mind think that they should be, uh, you know, uh, yeah, win out in the end. I like, mean, no way. <laughs> it's kind of like how we discussed with The Exorcist, how we we're having issues trying to figure out who to identify with. I didn't actually feel a need to identify with anyone, did you, for this one? No. No, 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 because because his like as we're saying like Cronenberg has this thing with like being like at a remove. It's not like it's objective, but yeah, you're not. It's not the kind of story where you need to uh, have a surrogate on screen. You're watching it, like you're still yourself watching mm-hmm. these characters. He has this knack for like making a complete world where. Yeah, you you don't need to have somebody in your avatar in there to identify, you know? Now, we've spoken about, like, how actual movies are made, like, the behind the scenes and everything, and I know you taught me what a stand-in is. Is that how they did it with uh, the two oh, with, twins? Like With the twins? I, I think they had, uh, like, they would shoot... I think there's, I think there's different some optical tricks, but yeah, like you can just put us, you can put another actor when you don't see their face. You know what I mean? There were quite a few times when you actually have them like standing side by side. Yeah. And I I was very curious, how do they do that? Yeah. I don't know all the technical stuff, but I mean, I think the real magic of it uh, is, you know, Jeremy Irons playing two distinct people, you know? Definitely. Yeah, that that as you said earlier, they do like they blur because they switch roles, but they always act differently from each other, you know. Because mm-hmm. you got the one kind of super confident one and one that's kind of hesitant, you know, but brilliant. <laughs> I am really starting to think that in a way they really are just like one person. Oh, they totally are one person. Yeah. Yeah, they they should have sewed themselves together. That would have worked. You think that that's the, that's what they that's where they went wrong if yes. they just become <laughs> just somehow become like one being somehow we're but not also, talking yeah. about like reality anymore. My mind's left that. <laughs> no, but like the sort of like the sadness of it is that basic what what it's telling you is that them being twins is is them being like a one person that's broken into two. So they're actually not a whole. Like they can't be whole because they're they've been broken by biology. You know. I would actually say that is probably the most philosophical part of the entire film, because like even the beginning and everything, we see how they interact with each other as like little boys, as twins. Yeah. And yeah, it's almost they, like where did they go wrong? Were they just always 
detached. Yeah, they were always they were always wrong. Well, yeah, with with the interaction with the neighbor girl, you know, like that's not how a person acts. But in in the hope of having a normal relationship with another human, how like, old you're not going to get far. Be? What? How old were they supposed to be in that beginning? When I don't they're know. They're talking about fucking. But too young to be talking. It's uh, and it's also that thing of like the academic or intellectual mind. You know, like you know they read about it in a book, and then they went out into the street and like try to apply it. But that's that does like. Can you imagine walking around the world and just saying things that you learned in a book to people? They'd be horrified. <laughs> you know what I mean? What's interesting is. I, I can't remember exactly what they said, but I do remember that they were saying some stuff that was actually incorrect about sex, like they didn't fully understand it at the time. And I wanted to know if that's just kind of something that carried over in their minds forever, like they just never truly understood the proper way that relationships are supposed to work. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think in a certain way they ever grew to maturity as as adults in that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they were brilliant. At, at their job, but they were completely clueless. And also, to, like, as yeah, grown men, they still lived with each other, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. What was that one line when they're like, do you live in the same apartment as your brother? I think, like, he said, like, oh, yeah, we both like Italian furniture or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, that's the best reasoning ever, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and I think there is a lot of humor in Cronenberg, but it's it's so deadpan and like low key, you know. <laughs> it's it's perfect set it's for our generation. We're, we're said with a straight pan. face yeah. always. <laughs> it's almost like anti jokes, anti humor. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like all the ways that like someone could watch this movie because you actually you got to watch it like in theaters. You were there for the VHS experience, probably DVD, mm-hmm. and did you watch it off Criterion for this one? Uh, I forget where it was. It was on some streaming channel. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know? I mean, it was definitely streaming. Where did you watch it on? I was uh, going to watch it on Amazon Prime, and I saved it to my watch list, and then two days later when I went to go watch it, it was gone. Oh. <laughs> so I think it's called Tubi or something like that. Tubi, yeah. Tubi's great, a great garbage heap of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote I wrote a thing for the reader about Tubi. Um, I tracked down all these movies shot in Chicago that I'd never heard of, like these real low budget movies. How like it was like kind of like about the shittiest movies shot in Chicago, but due to the magic of Tubi, they were they could be shared <laughs> with the world. Because <laughs> I'll watch anything shot in Chicago. Yeah. I hear I'm that one a lot of those more people. movies are starting to be shot in Chicago. I mean, they have the 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 big cine stage they they built. Yeah, that's, that's actually just west of the bar I work at. Yeah, and there's people that work there that hang out at the bar I work at. But yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot. Cause like I must say, the last movie, big movie that I recall being filmed here was uh, Dark Knight. Uh, tra- the Transformers movies were the first couple were made here. Uh, yeah. Those don't exist in my mind. <laughs> well, they're huge movies. <laughs> that was it was crazy to see. I mean, I was driving a cab and they had all that stuff. They'd block up like Michigan Avenue right by the bridge with all the all the stuff. It was kind of amazing to look at. I've, I haven't seen any of those movies. I have no interest. But <laughs> I remember my sister. She lived right by where they were keeping some of the uh, effects and uh, 
things for the set for Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. And, like, we literally were staring down and being like, what the fuck is that, like, a tank or some shit? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, like, we watched a movie and we were like, that's a Batmobile? What? Yeah. I was totally also in the cab inconvenienced by the dark night because they would close down uh, Lower Wacker Drive nights to film. And uh, it, it, it fucked with my business. <laughs> <laughs> what street is it that they flip the uh, semi? Uh, LaSalle. LaSalle. That's what yeah, I was right, right there, like where all the banks are and where the, 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 exchange, the stock exchange is, you know? It's so weird. I know we're totally getting off subject, but like for the Dark Knight series, they only did two of them in Chicago. The third one, I yeah, think I think they did, they did in did Philadelphia two. or Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah, I forget where they did the other one, but yeah. Obviously, we chased them away. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, interestingly, I think somebody told me with Cronenberg, I think he's only shot one movie outside of Canada. I forget one of them is in in the U.S., but like the rest of his movies are all made in Canada. Uh, Which you maybe, gotta respect. Yeah, and I mean, they're they have a, like this. Their own vibe. Toronto is a huge film scene. Mm -hmm. Where in Canada is he from? I don't know. Uh, I don't know that that much about his his uh, personal biography. (laughs) Sorry. What? (laughs) Just like I don't know. I'm asking you all these weird like Cronenberg things. Like you're the expert. He's from (laughs) Toronto. Okay, there you go. (laughs) The magic of Wikipedia. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Back in the day, if you wanted to know some shit, like you'd have to like walk to the library. <laughs> yeah, there was there was weird like fan fanzines, you know, like devoted to. Let's see. Uh, I mean, I was I was friends with some older people, like some of the older people that introduced me to all the weird movies and music and stuff. And there was there was stuff like uh, there was this thing called. I think it may have been partly Chicago-based, called the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film. They would put out zines and then books of all these, like, obscure movies that weren't. And this was, you know, it started before the video age, but then went into the VHS era. uh, And uh, people finding movies that are totally forgotten. Mm -hmm. We'd sometimes have after-hour screenings at the movie theater, like these Z, Z-grade movies. Like There was one I remember called The Corpse Grinders. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> so I'm saying, I would love to see some of this shit in theaters. Oh, yeah, and that's that's a place to see it. Uh, you know, these Because, I mean, one of the things with horror is so much of it is visual, you know? Mm-hmm. And the bigger the screen, the better uh, for, like, the splatter or the, the weird effects, you know? And also the sound. I mean, I don't think any speakers you have at your house can really compare to, like, you know, like the low, like, eerie sounds and everything that they have going on in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Well, not, yeah. This is my official request for Logan Theater to do a midnight showing of Dead Ringers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, nothing beats the the movie theater experience for this kind of stuff. Although, it's you know, it's... Gradually, gradually going away, you know, for... I think, like, uh, okay, I don't... This is how you know I don't go to the movie theater often. Would you say multiplex, like the big theaters? Yeah. I think they're on their way out, but I think indie theaters are here to stay. 
what the all the multiplexes are doing, and even like the music box does, they they're really getting into all this like theater rentals, you know, like have your party at the movie theater kind of thing. Oh, There's God. a lot of that, a lot of that, and like I went to a movie yesterday, and they're they're advertising like game nights, like to play video games on the movie screen, shit like that. I know, like right now, this whole last year and a half has clearly impacted it. Well, yeah. <laughs> so my question is like. Is it because of the pandemic that they're on the way out or just kind of streaming? I think streaming a lot. And, you know, people are getting bigger and bigger, like, home theater system. You know, you can have a projector theater screen, you know, in your house. Mm -hmm. People do. So it starts to approximate a movie theater. But, I mean, the thing that you can't recreate is that the event kind of feeling that you have to leave your house, you know, you have to. The movie doesn't stop because you have to go to the bathroom or get a snack, you know. Mm -hmm. All that is really, really important, that you're taking time out of your everyday life to go to, go to a thing. And uh, you, can't replace, you can't recreate that at home, no matter yeah. how good the technology is, you know. The flow definitely does get interrupted. I do. I do find myself getting up and, like, sometimes checking my phone and everything a lot while yeah. I'm watching movies at home. I was doing that even the other day while watching Dead Ringers because it's slow paced at certain points and yeah. I think people need to know that obviously like it, it gets like more and more tense as the movie goes on. Yeah I mean there's no yeah there's not any car chases in it or anything. <laughs> or It's like a mental like tension like you're feeling it more if you're paying attention hopefully. Yeah let's see I mean I don't I think, think it's the kind of movie that you could just have in the background. No uh, no you have to you have to immerse yourself in it, and it's, yeah, I mean, primarily, like, the the plot points, the plot is silly, like, who cares? Uh, what it is is just that that feeling, that dread, you know, of mm -hmm. feeling yourself not being right, you know, and having feelings you shouldn't be feeling, and, uh, I mean, it's a horror movie where nobody dies until the end, you know? And also, I, I think my favorite <laughs> part about it is... Mm, you know, I was actually about to say no one else seems to be their victims, but who knows victims what, of other things. Who knows what they did to other women before they totally went off the deep end, you know, really. Yeah, <laughs> and th th there were some fucked up things they did, obviously, with their, what is it, like state-of-the-art gynecological tools and obviously the consensual issues and everything when it comes to sex. Yeah, because, I mean, it's heavily implied that it's not the first time that they switched out on women that way, you know? Yeah, because Elliot said, he's like, you would never have lost your virginity if it wasn't for me. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you think Beverly, I mean, not Beverly, um, wow, I forgot the Elliot. name of the female uh, character. Oh, uh, Claire. Claire, do you think she was the tipping point? She's what caused it all, or do you think they're always headed towards that? I yeah I th I think they I mean she she maybe triggered them but something would have like it's I mean it's I'm certainly not saying she did anything wrong you know well she definitely had the drugs she was pretty into that and even though she did catch on to the fact that they were twins she kept it going mm hmm yeah I mean yeah she was she wasn't like the most healthy well adjusted person either yeah she had her own weird shit going on. <laughs> And she was totally into kinky sex, I think we saw. Yeah, yeah, she liked being tied up. She liked being controlled. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, like where, yeah, w when uh, 
Elliot was telling Beverly what he needed to do. Like, this is all you need to do. Like, he, he you know, he figured out her out in five minutes, you know? This is the shit you need to do to, to get her to come running back for more. <laughs> what, yeah, she's, she, yeah, she's no saint either. Yeah. yeah, like, she, I feel, is, like, the huge tipping point for Beverly. And it just, I don't know, I never felt like uh, Elliot was in as, uh, not insane, but obviously insane as Beverly, like losing it as much. Well, bec- well, so, I mean, prior to Claire coming along, uh, you know, Beverly was happy just being like this genius, like inventor, surgeon, doctor guy, you know? Mm-hmm. He was happy with his work, but then, and which is also a thing of, you know, in human development, you know, when you go meet somebody and you fall in love, it changes your whole life, and he just was not equipped for that. He couldn't balance it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Having somebody in his life, like he totally, like all his work went to shit once he got attached to Claire, you know? <laughs> he couldn't do both. And that's what part of what growing up is about, and he, they couldn't do it. <laughs> I found the one scene interesting where um, he said that he was going to cut Claire off from the drugs and then started getting into it himself. Like, what was that tipping point? What lo- triggered that? Oh, yeah. Be- well, they, they were trying to come up with different ways f- for her. Uh, what was it? Uh, I, it was around the time where I think he broke it to her that she was never going to have children. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, he a- oh, he asks her what drugs she's on because she'd been seeing all these other doctors before they'd met. And then he insists that she she only has him prescribe the drugs, which is the time that get, he gets hooked. Yeah. Because once again, like, for, you know, he's trying to get closer to her just the way that like, later the two brothers, like, you know, Elliot thinks he's going to fix Beverly by doing all the same drugs that Beverly's on, you know? I definitely think it was, like, the loss of Claire and then the loss of, like, his twin brother to a certain degree is what definitely spiraled Beverly out. Yeah, there's a lot, a a lot, sort of, like, a lot about a a big exploration of, like, sort of life, life work balance, you know, (laughs) how hard that is. (laughs) And, yeah, these guys, none of these people can manage it at all, (laughs) no matter how brilliant they are, you know? Exactly. Beverly definitely felt felt more reliant on Elliot for just about everything. So, I don't know. I just found that interesting. Almost, they did. They did need each other, which made me find the ending very, not fun, but rewarding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, they did end up together in the end. I mean, they were dead, but they're together. Hey. Born the same day, die the same day. That's how twins be. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it almost was almost like they secretly in their head had a suicide pact. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you you you, you never I think I said this before. You never got the feeling that any of this shit would end well, or nor should it, you know, <laughs> for them. <laughs> I mean, from the very beginning when they were saying the fucked up shit as kids, you're like, yeah, their outcome in life is not going to be well. No. <laughs> <laughs> Like, they're starting off, unless anyone intervenes and it doesn't, like, look like it. Because they, they were their own support circle, you know? Yeah, yeah, they were, they were the whole world. And, yeah, so Claire coming in upset the balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
where, you know, like obviously they've had other relationships with women, but those women never penetrated the inner sanctum kind of, you know? Yeah. You know, it's fascinating that like that this was the one time that like Beverly got attached because he seemed so much more sensitive. Yeah. Well, be, yeah, be, because before they had their they'd had their defined roles, you know, like Elliot was the showman, like he's the front facing part. He's like front of the house, and <laughs> Beverly was back of the house. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then, as as often happens, you know, the the back of the house person wants to be out out front too. You know, <laughs> like so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all the, they're all just parts parts of a whole. You know, like imperfect and fractured parts of a whole and yeah the longing is to become like a whole well-rounded human being and you know they they don't quite make it (laughs) (laughs) go go see all the david cronenberg movies there's there's few people better you know and who knows how many more we'll get out of him maybe one or two more you know he's getting up there in years yeah cool all right good (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.